Good morning, church. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab them, get them out, open them up to Mark chapter 1. We are in the second sermon through a sermon series called Behold the King, where we're just walking through the Gospel of Mark to behold Jesus, our good God and King. Uh, that Mark writes the Gospel of Mark intentionally framing and presenting Jesus as the promised king from Genesis 3 all the way through time and history, the promised king. And last week we looked at the announcement of the king. We looked at the announcement of the king by John the Baptist, and today we, we look at the arrival of our, our king, the arrival of our king. So um, if, if you have your Bibles, great, open them up. If you, I just want to make one quick announcement. We have eight of the ESV scripture journals of Mark left. So if somebody has one, if you'll just hold it up, yeah, hold it up. That right there. So if you're in the room, look around. There's a handful of them in the back. Um, we have eight of those left. They're five bucks in the Connect Center. It's a great resource to help you just kind of see the scriptures and then have a whole blank empty sheet of paper to take your notes and follow along. You can bring that with you on Sunday, read through it throughout the week as you're going, make notes in it. It's a great resource to help you interact with God's word on a daily basis or just bring with you and do here. So I would encourage you, if you want one of those, there's eight more of them in the Connect Center. You can grab those for five bucks afterwards, card or cash. We don't make any money on that. We just pay for, pay for them and replenish the stock. As each week we begin our sermon, I want to begin um, us each asking the Lord for something um, and then praying for the person who's preaching. So a uh, short moment of prayer where we're going to ask everyone to just ask the Lord to speak to you. Um, so in your own mind, in your own word, it'll be a moment for you to just ask God to speak to you. With all the things going on in the world, all the things going on in your own life, in your own heart, what every one of us need most right now isn't the Lord to solve all of our problems. It's not for uh, this person or that person to do X or Y or Z. It's that we would hear from God right now in this moment. And so I want to encourage you in this moment to, uh, as we pray, to ask the Lord to speak to you. And the second thing is, whoever is doing the preaching each week or on the weeks that we, ha we gather um, is doing something that they are completely in need of God to do. Uh, broken, sinful man preaching God's word needs God to speak through him. So, so I ask you to pray for me that the Lord would just use me as a tool to speak um, his word, what he would have said, and to wash away anything that's unhelpful this morning. So, so take just a few moments, and just a few moments in the quiet, and just ask the Lord in your own mind to speak to you. God, with all the things going on in each of our lives, in the world around us, uh, it can seem like there's a whole bunch of urgent, um, but what's most important right now? And maybe not feeling urgent, but most important right now is that we hear from you today. So God, would you speak to each person here? Would you speak specifically from your word to the specific things going on in, the, in their heart? 
Now pray for just a few moments and ask the Lord to just use me as a tool to communicate his gospel and his truth today. That I would be useful and then he'd wash away anything unhelpful. Father, I need you. Uh, I'm a broken, sinful man and need you now to speak through me. Just use me as a tool to make Jesus look really great. Wash away anything unhelpful. Guide my thoughts and words and bring clarity to your truth, to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by reading you a quote, and some of you maybe uh, you're like, ooh, what's that from? If you want to do that, you're welcome to. Here we go. With malice towards none, with clarity or charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him whom shall, be, shall, shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to whom all which may achieve and cherish as just and lasting, a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Any ideas where that's from? If you're an American history nut, you might know. Um, that's from Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Um, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, right in the midst of the Civil War, he gives this speech. It's not a very long speech, but he finishes it with that. And, and when a president would enter office, what happens? They put their hand on the Bible, and they take the oath of office, and then they give what? An inaugural address. They, they give an inaugural address. And in an inaugural address, what are they doing? They're setting in, in that speech the direction and communicating the purpose with which they seek to lead in the role in which they are going or now entered into as a king, as a queen as a, as a president. In, in this speech, Lincoln says that he's going to seek justice over slavery and to bind a divided nation, caring for the wounds of those from a terrible war and seeking to establish peace across their nation, our nation, and the world. On an individual level, peace. It's an, it's an incredibly lofty hope and, and, and goal, uh, a direction for a president of the United States. Uh, I, would, I would pose one that no president of the United States could actually follow through on because no president can bring peace and lasting peace to your heart. Um, but today as we look at the, the king, Jesus, the arrival of the king, the gospel of Mark opens with a demonstration of his inaugural address, what Jesus has come to do as our king. And it's going to see it in two specific parts. It's really interesting that it comes in two specific parts, in the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. Mark unpacks for us what King Jesus has come to do. And ironically, he's come to do what Abraham Lincoln wanted to do, which is establish peace, a lasting peace in the hearts of men in a divided world. Not like man-to-man divided, but between God and man, divided. And so we're going to see this morning in the Gospel of Mark, verses uh, 9 through 13, in the baptism of Jesus and in the temptation of Jesus, the inauguration of his kingdom. He's arrived, the arrival of the king, 
And in his actions here, he's going to show us what he's come to do. How is the kingdom of Jesus going to be established? It's in these two things. We'll walk through these in two parts. The first one is this. In his death, he will establish his kingdom. In his death, he has come to undo all that mankind has done wrong. That Jesus will establish his kingdom in his death by undoing all that mankind has done wrong in sin. And the second one is in his life. That in his life, he has come to establish his kingdom by doing all that you and I fail to do. And this is seen in his baptism and in his temptation. Let's, let's dive in. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You see, Mark opens up the Gospel of Mark with no ambiguity. There's no mystery here as to what Mark is seeking to do. In verse 1, he says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the story of the good news about a coming king who has come to secure victory for his people. That's what the words gospel mean, and he's pointing to Jesus. And so as Jesus enters the story as a king, he doesn't enter the story where you might imagine him entering. He doesn't enter in some royal fashion. He enters by walking from his hometown in Nazareth to the middle of nowhere, where John is. And if you were with us last week, a little recap, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the messenger who would come before Jesus to announce the kingdom is here. Be ready. The king's about to walk in. Right after me comes the king. That's John's role. That's what John does. And John's got the whole nation out there listening to him preach, coming to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. Very important there. A baptism of repentance from sin is what these people are coming for. And so Jesus comes to inaugurate, to arrive and establish his kingdom. And he walks out in the middle of nowhere among a huge crowd of people to see John, his cousin. If you didn't know that, his cousin, actual like biological cousin, preaching in the wilderness, baptizing thousands of people. If you look at Mark and Luke and John, if you didn't know, the four Gospels, meaning the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all foretellings of the same story, of the life and specifically the three years of ministry of Jesus. They all talk about these two moments, the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, but they all emphasize specific parts or details of it. In the same way that when you, maybe you and a friend would go see a movie, there might be a particular part that you think, if you're talking to this friend, is really cool and important for them to see, and you emphasize that part because you want them to get this part of the, theme, the movie. In the same way, Mark emphasizes a very unique aspect of the baptism of Jesus to the other three Gospels. But as Jesus is walking out to the Jordan River, John the Baptist looks up and sees him. It's not the first time John sees Jesus, but it is the first time John has said this about him. He's coming down, imagine it looks like a hill coming down towards the river. And John looks up and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That John looks up at Jesus coming down the hill from Nazareth to the river, giant crowd of people, and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
reaching back all the way into Exodus when God's people were enslaved and set free, wandering in the wilderness, and Passover was instituted before they leave Egypt, where they would slaughter a lamb in order so their son would be saved. John makes this declaration about who Jesus is there. This coming king is a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And lambs in Scripture die. Just to be clear, lambs, sheep in Scripture die for a very specific reason. And so as Jesus comes down in John's specific telling of this, there's a little dialogue that Mark leaves out. When, when Jesus approaches John, he says, I want to I be baptized. And John's like, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't need to be baptized. And, and which causes us to be like, well, wait a second, what was this baptism? This is a baptism of repentance of sin. Jesus is God in flesh, the coming king who has no sin. He doesn't need to be baptized. Jesus doesn't need to repent of sin and be baptized by John, which means John's right in saying like, what? what? This is a baptism about people confessing and turning away from their sin. You don't belong in that. You, didn't, you don't sin, which makes us have to ask the question, why is Jesus being baptized then? Like, why is Jesus being baptized if he doesn't actually need to repent of any sin and, and be baptized? What's going on here? What's going on here? You see, John understands that Jesus doesn't deserve to be baptized. And Jesus' response to him is this. Yes, John, it must happen in order to fulfill all righteousness. In order to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus must be baptized. So what's taking place in Jesus' baptism? Jesus goes into the water, and he's standing there before John and the whole crowd of people, and John either dunks him this way or dunks him this way. He goes all the way underwater, like it says, and he comes up out of the water. What's Jesus doing in his baptism? He's not repenting of sin. This is what Jesus is doing. He's, an, he's showing how he will establish his kingdom. See, baptism is a symbolic act of dying and coming back to life. For you and I, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you've confessed him as your Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, baptism is a symbol of your death to the old life because of your faith in Jesus and coming up out of that water, the new life that you now live by the Spirit. But Jesus, again, needs no death because of no sin. So listen to this. Jesus walks into the space, stands in the spot where all these sinners have stood, where they have been baptized and symbolically their sins washed away in repentance. And he comes up out of that same water. You see, Jesus is standing in the place of atonement for these people, for you and I. Now, Jesus is showing that his baptism is unpacking how he's going to establish his kingdom. It's that he's going to go and he's going to stand in your place, doesn't deserve to be there, doesn't have any sin to be washed away, but he's going to stand in your place, take your sins upon himself, be baptized into death, and rise to new life. Now, Jesus' baptism is showing, it's the inaugural address of how his kingdom will be established in the hearts of men. By his death, by his bearing of sin in our place, by his resurrection. That Jesus is foreshadowing what he's going to do. Reaching back to Genesis chapter 3, what's necessary for sin? 
Once you eat the fruit, what's going to happen? You surely will die. Romans 3.23, for the wages, the payment for sin is death. So Jesus is showing these people he's going to establish his kingdom by standing in their place. A French or Scottish theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, put it this way. He will become our Savior by standing in the river in whose waters penetrate Jews had, sim- had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. That Jesus in his baptism is symbolizing his going into and having all of our sins washed over him in his death. That his kingdom would be established by him taking sin upon himself and death and then resurrection. Jesus has come to undo all that our sin has done in his death. That in his death, in his resurrection, he has come to undo all that our sin has done. Namely, death itself. That he has come to die in our place. And in order for this king to do that, he had to be God. That he had to be God. This is a really unique passage of scripture. There's two points in the Gospel of Mark where the divinity of Jesus is like announced. I mean, you see Mark 1, 1, the Son of God, but this passage of Scripture and Mark 9, the transfiguration, where Jesus like shows his glory to three of his disciples, he shows his divinity, shows his godness, and this are really unique, because here's what happens here. This moment and point in history, we have a, just a kind of theological like sidebar here. We, we worship and serve a, tr- a Trinitarian God. Uh, one God three persons. So one God, three persons, super complicated. There's a great uh, uh, YouTube video um, that unpacks it about St. Patrick. So go watch that. It's funny too. Um, but so uh, we, have, we serve and worship one God who is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all equal, uh, all serving one another for the glory of the whole. And in this moment, all three show up. In the, in the moment of the inauguration of the kingdom of God, Who comes to the inauguration? God. In the moment of the inauguration of the kingdom of God, who speaks? God. And what does God say? God says this in in, in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Father speaks at the inauguration of the kingdom. God speaks at the beginning of his kingdom's establishment. And then we see the Holy Spirit show up. Because when it happens, the heavens, meaning the skies, torn open and descending on him like a a dove is the Holy Spirit. And it comes and it rests upon Jesus. So in this moment, unique in history, we have Father speaking, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, Son standing there in the water, and Holy Spirit descending upon him. That our triune, one God in three persons, all present in this point in history, all inaugurating the kingdom of God in Jesus' arrival. Showing that, yes, in his death, in his being covered with our sin, in his death, and in his resurrection, 
this kingdom will be established. Uh, An unlikely place for a king or way for a kingdom to be established. Most kingdoms were established throughout history in what? Like these people rise up and they go and they defeat these people, right? Or this guy dies and this guy becomes king. No, like this kingdom is unique because this kingdom comes at the death of the king. That through the death and the resurrection of the king, through Jesus' death, he undoes all that our sin has done by taking our sin upon himself. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That in order for us to be saved, in order for us to be in the kingdom of God, our sin must be laid upon Jesus and he must die in our place and rise from the dead. That the kingdom of God is established by the king, Jesus, in his death, where he undoes all that our sin has done. The second thing that we see in this passage is this. Jesus establishes his kingdom in his life. We've seen in his death, he undoes all that we have done, our sin. But now we see in his life, he has come to do all that we have failed to do. Look with me in verses 12 through 13. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, who just descended on him, Immediately, John uses that word, or Mark uses that word a whole bunch, so you're going to see it for a while. Immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was, in the, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is a part that's also really unique to Mark. See, none of the other Gospels mention anything about wild animals in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. They mentioned some specifics to what Jesus was tempted about, but none of them mention a few things that are really unique to Mark saying this, all pointing to how Jesus would establish his kingdom. And here they are. One is that he, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. All for the, for the Jewish reader, and I'll help us connect the dots, for the Jewish reader, Mark's readers in the first century, seeing the language that's going on right here, immediately connects the dots back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God creates the world, man is created, his prized piece of, of creation, to image and reflect him to the world. And he gives Adam a job. Name the animals. Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, have dominion over all of it. That's your job. Be the king. That's his job. To be the king and image God to the world around. But what happens? They sin in Genesis 3. God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you're going to die. Satan tempts them in the garden. Keep in point, in the garden. Satan tempts them. Oh, you're not really going to die. You're actually going to become like God. And that sounds really cool. Okay, sounds good. Looks good. Let's do it. They eat it. They sin, right? What happens once they sin? They're naked. They're scared. They build, make clothes out of leaves and they go hide. We'll get to that in a minute. But what happens? God pronounces judgment over them and judgment over the serpent, and then he drives them out of the garden. That he drives them out of the garden into the wilderness. 
You see, the connections that come in here for us as we're, leading, we're reading and thinking about the whole of the Bible, this one grand story of God coming to love, sacrifice, and establish his kingdom in the hearts of men. From Genesis all the way until this point in Mark, this driving Jesus out into the wilderness is picking up on the same language that happens in Genesis chapter 3, when in their sin, God drove them out into the wilderness away from his presence in the garden. So Jesus goes to the wilderness where man's doing, sin, their failure to obey the command of God has brought them to the wilderness. So Jesus, this king who comes to establish his kingdom, goes to the wilderness where man has ended up because of his failure, because of our failure. See, Jesus is driven to the wilderness. The second thing we see here is that Jesus is tempted by Satan. Again, super unique. Like, there's not very many places in the Bible where this phrase, tempted by Satan, happens. Reaching back again to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden, no sin, temptation by the serpent. What happens with Adam and Eve? The same thing that happens with you and I all the time. We're tempted, and what do we do? We believe the lie, and we fail. Adam and Eve, they, they believe the lie, they sin, and they're driven from the presence of God. See, Jesus has come into the wilderness, the place in which mankind lives and dwells, and he steps into the temptation in which mankind failed so that he can do what mankind failed to do, which is obey the law of God. Not tempt and fall. The word temptation means to, to try and trick or deceive or trap. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. That's what happens in the temptation of Jesus. That Satan is seeking to tempt, trap Jesus. So Jesus goes to the place, the wilderness, and he, while he's there, he, he, he encounters the same thing Adam and Eve do, the temptation of the serpent. But Jesus does what they failed to do. He doesn't sin. He doesn't fall into the lie. He obeys. Adam and Eve believed the lie that God was not good to them, and they broke the law. They do what God forbid them to do. But Jesus came in their place and does what we failed to do. The third thing that's really unique to this is the wild animal part. It, feel, it seems like and feels like a, like, really? Like, that seems weird and random. The Bible's inspired and inerrant. Every word of it is given by God through the writers of them. And so this wild animal point is just like the temptation moment, is just like the driving out, pointing back to Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. What was Adam given the job to do? To rule over and have dominion over all the animals. Now Jesus finds himself in the wilderness among not... not, not uh, not, uh, what do you call it, subdued animals, not like house pets, but wild beasts. That because of the sin of man, the animals are no longer tameable, but are wild. It's all pointing back to this, that Jesus is the new Adam, the one who was and intended to be the king over to establish the rule and reign, to, to live out the kingdom of God and be his, his image bearers to the world failed to do. And so when Jesus 
goes into the wilderness, is tempted by Satan. Mark is wanting us to see this. Jesus has come to do what our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed to do. What you and I fail to do on a daily, weekly basis, which is obey the law of God in our place. That he is the new Adam. This is what Romans 5, this will be up on the screen, says in verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass, the eating of the fruit, led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, this is what Mark is getting at. That in Jesus... His kingdom is established in the hearts of men by his death, undoing all that our sin has done, and his life, doing all that we fail to do, obeying the law of God. That Jesus earned righteousness. One pastor put it this way. So when he was tempted, he was not in a garden like Adam. He was not like Adam, surrounded by animals over which he exercised dominion. He was, not in, a, or he was in a desert. Surrounded by wild beasts. It was in a fallen, broken, sinful, disintegrating world that Jesus faced temptation and the powers of darkness. In order to win for his people a way back to the tree of life. You see, Jesus is saying in his actions of being tempted, and as Mark is unfolding the king, that in the death of Jesus, symbolized in his baptism and his resurrection, And in the life of Jesus, to stand in the place of temptation and not fail, his kingdom is established. That Jesus' kingdom is established in the hearts of man by standing in their place, in their death, that he takes upon our our sin upon him, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his life, that he does, obeys all of the law of God in our place where we have failed. That Jesus is our king who doesn't come to sit on a throne and look over all of his subjects and say, come on guys, get it together. He's a king who comes humbly and steps in our place, dying the death our sin deserves and living a righteous, obedient to God's life, God's word, life, that we fail to do. The kingdom of Jesus is established by a sacrificial Standing in our place, King. That Jesus came to establish his kingdom by being in your place. Martin Luther explained this as the great exchange. You know who Martin Luther is? It's not a big deal. 400 year old dead guy. Reformation started because some of his work. Martin Luther said that this is the great exchange that our sin, everything that we have done, is laid upon Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness, everything he did, never sinned, was taken and laid upon us. The great exchange. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. And, And righteousness is required for salvation. But not by your doing. But by the free gift of God. So what does this lead us to do? What, what change, what, what does the gospel, the kingdom of God, leave us to do? What is this passage where Mark is saying, 
The kingdom of God is coming. The king has arrived. And here's what he's going to do. Seen in his baptism, seen in his temptation. Well, for, for some of us, we've not put our faith in Jesus as our king who come to take our sin upon himself and to give us righteousness. And for, for you, maybe you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus, that he died in your place, taking your sin upon him. And that he lived a righteous life, obeying all of God's laws, and he gives that free to you. Then if you've not put your faith in Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Confess him as your Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, that he was the king who came to die in your place and to freely give you his perfect obedience. And that in faith, by faith in Jesus, in that, you can die and stand before God as if you never sinned because your sin is laid upon Jesus. And you look righteous as if you never sinned because of the work of Jesus. So some of you, it may be that you need to put your faith in Jesus that you need to confess him as your Lord today. That maybe you know about Jesus, you've heard about Jesus, uh, you know you're a sinner. It's pretty hard to deny. If we just sit down for five minutes and just, well, the thoughts that come to our heads can be awfully revealing. But we are hopeless without faith in Jesus. So maybe that's for you, that you need to put your faith in Jesus today. Maybe for you, you've put your faith in Jesus. You're a Christian. You've trusted in Jesus for your salvation. There's this, especially, I think it's probably predominant among every single part of the world. Uh, there's this, like, need to, to justify ourselves after already being justified. Let me clarify. We've been made right We've been loved, and nothing we do can, can take away the love. We've been forgiven by Jesus. We've been declared sinless by his death and his righteousness in our place. But now I really need to, like, do some more. You can think of it in this, that we minimize the cross. That we say, yeah, Jesus' death in my place was great, but I also need to do more. And so we begin to add self-righteousness on top of that. And it plays out in super, super subtle ways. It plays out in super subtle ways like pretending. Like, like needing to act like you're more like Jesus and less sinful than you really are. I, I'm like, my prayer for this church is that we would be a place where we don't pretend. That when you come into this place, in our culture, in, our, in where we live particularly, churches are some of the most fake places you've, you, you will walk into. The gospel frees you from the need to act like you're less sinful than you are. Because Jesus knows all your sin and he already did something about it. So you're free from the need to act like you're more morally good than you actually are. You don't need to pretend. You also don't need to perform to try and earn people's favor and affection and love and praise or God's. Because all of that was done on Jesus for you. That you don't have to pretend that you're less sinful and you don't have to try and become more self-righteous by your own work. 
Another way that this predominantly plays out is, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I feel like I have to hide. There's things in my life that I feel like I can't really tell anybody about. Whether that's past or whether that's current struggles. This, this, this internal longing need burden to hide your sin, hide your brokenness, comes from this place where you feel like you, ha- you don't measure up and you have to do something about it. And so you hide. And see, the gospel frees us from the need to perform, the need to pretend, or the need to hide. Because Jesus sees all of you, and Jesus loves you. And his people, his kingdom, should be a place where you are safe to be known, and in his grace, not shamed, condemned, or judged, but embraced with his love. Because when we see the grace of God, not our own sin, not the judgment of others, but we see the gospel played out in our relationships with one another, when we daily look to the righteousness of God in our place, Jesus, we begin to change. We begin to experience transformation. We begin to see our sin as less like fulfilling, less of a, of a place to fill your appetite. And then Jesus, a place that really does satisfy. So maybe it looks like owning your own failure. Like, yeah, I failed to obey God. And I can freely embrace the gift of Christ's obedience in my place. That I can own my sin. So, yeah, I definitely messed up there. But thanks be to God for the grace of Jesus that he did it for me. And maybe it looks like trusting that even in your failure, the Father still loves you. That he loved you enough that Jesus would stand in your place. That lamb who died as a sacrifice for your sin. And that nothing you can do No exposure of who you are can take away his love, take away his forgiveness. That he loves you. You see, the kingdom of God is established in the hearts of man, us. See, Jesus' kingdom isn't this like national, like flag, like we are come in this place kind of local location kingdom. The location of the kingdom of God is in the hearts of people who believe in Jesus and his death in our place and his life in our place. That he in his death undoes all that our sin has done. And then in his life, he has done all that we failed to do. It should, and I hope, be a good reminder that we have a king who is worthy of our praise because he's done it all. He's died in our place, and he's obeyed all the law. So we have a king who's, who stood in our place, who knew your sin, and he died for you. And he lived for you, and he rose for you. And so we worship him. We sing his praises. We own our sin and confess and repent. Because we have a gracious, loving father who doesn't cast us aside or tell us, no, no, too much, too far but he loves you. 
loves you enough to die in your place. Jesus was our atonement. He died in our place, and Jesus was our righteousness. He lived in our place. We're going to respond now, and what we encourage you to do, one, we want and love for our kids to come back in here and sing with us. Um, but we want also to, to stop and pause for the first song that we're going to sing right now to just be with Jesus. So whether he's convicted you of sin, whether he's been an encouragement to your soul, uh, whether you've come to the moment today where you're like, I need to put my faith in him as my savior, the, the right thing for us in this moment is to respond to Jesus as our king, as our savior, as the one who died in our place and lived in our place. And so this first song as we sing is a song and a time for us to reflect on what God has said and to, and to just be with him. Maybe it looks like prayer. Maybe it looks like standing and singing, whatever it looks like. Uh, Pastor Brandon will be up over here. I'll be up over here. If you need somebody to pray with you, we'll gladly pray with you. If you need to put your faith in Jesus, come up. We'd love to walk you through that. Um, if you want to sit, you want to stand, whatever responding looks like, this first song is the time for us to do that. And then after that first song, I'm going to encourage you, if you have kids in kindergarten through first grade, go grab them and bring them back in here so that they can sing to our King with us. Father, we thank you for being a gracious God. Uh, a king who establishes his kingdom not by uh, demands of his people, but by coming and fulfilling the demands in our place. God, I thank you so much for the grace of God, for Jesus. And that in him I have freedom from sin and shame. A freedom in life. In him I have salvation. God, would you remind us of that now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.